Well, hello everyone. This is James and Dylan, and this is our new podcast. This is our first podcast episode, and we're pretty excited about it. The uh, par- the podcast is called Arguments from Reason, and the way we got that name is actually pretty interesting. Uh, Dylan actually came up with it after trying about like fifteen thousand names, and I'm exaggerating a bit. I actually, exaggerate about a billion times a day. That's actually a fact. Uh, Dylan, you kind of want you want to explain how you got the idea for the name and kind of what the podcast is about, and introduce yourself as well. Yeah, so I'm Dylan, and James and I wanted to start a podcast about philosophy and Christian apologetics. And when we were trying to think of a name, we went through like a bunch of different names, but we couldn't think of anything that was good. And I came across the phrase arguments from reason in, uh, I think it was Calvin's Institutes. And it was the phrase he used for arguments for God's existence or arguments for uh, the inspiration of scripture. And I thought that would be a good name. So we kind of took that name from John Calvin, which is kind of cool because he uh, had a strong influence in the idea of belief in God and theology in terms of natural theology with his idea of the census divinitatis, which I'm sure we'll talk about on some episode in the future. So that's basically how we got our name. Yep. And uh, basically the idea we have for the podcast is that it's we wanted to be about Christian apologetics and philosophy, but we we're laymen, so you know we're not professionals. So uh, you know, don't take everything we say as if you're hearing it from two professionals. But we do plan on having some professionals on the show later on in the future. That'd be awesome. We have a few few people in mind as well. Uh, so Dylan, you kind of want to um, add a little bit onto uh, the purpose of the podcast and what exactly is our aim and our goal. Yeah, so our goal is we want to talk about apologetics and we want to talk about philosophy, both from a Christian perspective. And it's not just basically to talk about it, but we also want to engage in interesting ideas and get our listeners thinking about these concepts as well. Because being a Christian and loving God with our mind requires us thinking about our faith on an intellectual level. And apologetics and philosophy are ways the church has done that for a long time and ways the church should continue to do that. So that's the main goal. And as well, hopefully we can be a uh, light in the world towards unbelievers and they will listen to us and hear intellectually rigorous arguments, again from laymen, but hopefully we don't say anything too stupid. And hopefully it is of a good intellectual caliber. <laughs> yeah, hence on the too stupid. So there probably will be some stupidity in here. But um, uh, yeah, so uh, I guess let's just kind of tell It'll people about... Happen. Yeah, let, let's just kind of tell people uh, about ourselves, I guess, uh, before we get a little bit, you know, um, into this episode more. Uh, basically, I am... Uh, my background is uh, Latino. My parents are both uh, Salvadorians. Uh, and I grew up in the Pentecostal home, but uh, now I am of the Reformed faith. Um, I am slightly confessional, I guess you can say. Uh, with, you know, slightly confessional. I guess I'm not full confessional. And, uh, yeah, I'm just a guy who loves God and uh, is into... Loosely subscribed. Yeah, there we go. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I got an interest in apologetics um, 
after hmm, I guess listening to like uh, James White, I was introduced to him and uh, <laughs> Apology Radio, Saiten uh, Bergen Kate, uh, and uh, what's this guy's name? The The Way of the Master. You know, just seeing his uh, videos. Ray you know, Comfort. How, yeah, there you go. You know, how he just responds to people. So that kind of, like, sparked an interest. And then I was introduced to, you know, other other streams of thought, such as Alvin Plantinga, um, you know, uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, William Lane Craig. Uh, so, yeah. What about you, Dylan? So I'm broadly reformed as well. You could say I'm loosely confessional. I don't necessarily subscribe to every point of the Reformed Confessions, the Westminster Confession, or the Belgian Confession. But I subscribe to the system of doctrine, if you think that's a legitimate form of subscription. So I wasn't always Reformed. Uh, I was nominally Christian, even though I didn't go to church growing up. And I went through a series of like cultic beliefs as I was a teenager. I went through a brief phase of like Rastafarianism to modalism. I almost lost faith at one point. I almost, almost became an agnostic. And then I went through a few different phases until I came to the reform faith. But my interest in apologetics was primarily when I started getting interested in religion, I started Googling about defending the resurrection or belief in God. And I came across specifically William Lane Craig at some point. And through that, I got interested in apologetics and philosophy. And that's always been something I've been interested in since that, through going through various cults and eventually coming to Orthodox Christianity and Reformed Christianity specifically. And through that, I've also had different perspectives on apologetics, which we'll talk about later on the, in the episode. So it kind of gives me a wider scope of how apologetics works and why it's important. Because from my background, being influenced by cultic beliefs, I understand that apologetics isn't just arguing for God's existence, but it's also defending core Christian doctrines like the Trinity or the deity of Christ, two natures of Christ, and things like that. So there's a broader scope for apologetics for me and that's one of the reasons I find it important. Right. And um, I guess we both agree, though, our favorite part of apologetic is the existence of God and all these challenging questions. But we will cover a lot of other streams of apologetics, you know, Mormonism, Trinity, as you mentioned, uh, you know, against Jehovah's Witnesses and other cults. So uh, it's not just strictly you know, for the existence of God and whatnot. But uh, we really mean apologetic. Uh, I, I guess we should start with defining apologetic, <laughs> right? Yeah, so I think a lot of people who have loose familiarity with apologetics understand that apologetics is basically the idea of defending the Christian faith. Uh, but I'd like to use a more specific definition, and it's a definition William Lane Craig provides in his book Reasonable Faith. And he defines it like this. Apologetics is that branch of Christian theology which seeks to provide a rational justification for the truth claims of the Christian faith. Apologetics is thus primarily a theoretical discipline, though it has practical application. In addition to serving, like the rest of theology in general, as an expression of loving God with all our minds, apologetics specifically serves to show to unbelievers the truth of the Christian faith, 
to confirm that faith to believers and to reveal and explore the connections between Christian doctrine and other truths. So, James, what do you think of that definition? Uh, I'm in favor of it. I'm actually a pretty uh, hardcore William Lane Craig fan, and I know that's almost like an oxymoron for uh, Reformed folk. But, yeah, I agree with that uh, definition. Reformed person like you? Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I agree with it. So one, one thing he makes note of in this definition is that apologetics is a rational justification for the truth claims of Christianity. So the primary goal, according to this, is to show that Christian belief is not only rational but also true. And this is where it gets into arguments for God's existence or arguments for the resurrection of Jesus. And what I would say is this definition isn't necessarily obvious when you start looking at different apologetic methodologies, which we'll look at later. And the specific one I'm thinking of is Reformed epistemology, notable by Alvin Plantinga. And we'll talk about that later when we talk about Reformed epistemology. But in general, we can say that apologetics is a defense of the Christian faith. And we see that in scripture. For example, in Jude, specifically Jude 1.4, Jude commands Christians to contend for the faith that was delivered once and for all. He specifically says to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And we can see that in Acts when Paul is in Athens and he's defending the Christian faith on Mars Hill. We can also see it when Paul would go into synagogues and he would prove from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah to the Jews. And this kind of culminates in the command, basically the charter verse of apologetics in 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So this verse really shows us what apologetics is. So can you just talk about what that verse really is telling us? It makes three points. Honor the Christ, the Lord is holy. Be prepared to make a defense and do it with gentleness and respect. Right. Um, so amongst the different streams of apologetic methodology, there's uh, there might be a difference uh, in nuance, way of looking and interpreting this verse. But I, you know, I like to think that, well, at least it seems to me that it's basically saying uh, when it starts off as saying honor, you know, Christ um, as holy in your hearts when you're doing apologetic. I think that has to do with the intentionality uh, first and foremost. And I think Peter kind of drives the intentionality home later on in the chapter when he tells us to do it with gentleness. Um, if you are doing it with the motive of exalting Christ um, then you will be doing it with gentleness, right? Um, exalting Christ and having him holy in your heart does not consist of only zeal, but it consists of knowledge as well, right? So we want to avoid the Romans 10 type of people, the people that claim, you know, to have a zeal for God, but it isn't according to knowledge. So I, I like to think when it speaks of that part specifically, um, it's mostly speaking of an intent uh, uh, that you are doing with the intent of exalting Christ 
Um, and that, and it's just a reminder to keep him holy in, in our minds and in our hearts when we're engaging in apologetic. Like, let's make sure that that's the reason why we're doing it because of who he is and to proclaim his message. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the defense of the faith, um, it just doesn't, in my opinion, it doesn't only consist of arguments, but, uh, you know, just, you know, answering objections, you know, uh, showing that our faith is reasonable, um, is not only done through arguments, you know, it's done through just giving objections. You know, sometimes people aren't good at giving arguments or people don't know good arguments. So they just, you know, resort to a defense, literally a defense of the faith and just answering objections. So I like to think of it as a formula, kind of. Uh, we do it with the right intentions um, and that honors God. Yeah, I think I think that kind of draws out the essence of pol- of apologetics. There's a part at the end of William Lane Craig's Reasonable Faith where he says the ultimate apologetic is your life. And if you think of someone who's living their life honoring Christ as holy and treating unbelievers with gentleness and respect, that's often a better apologetic than any intellectual argument you could give somebody. Exactly. Because you could be rude, mean to them, arrogant, and it doesn't actually really matter to them too much what you're going to say for most people because you're being rude, so why should they even care what you're going to say to them in terms of arguments? So, yeah, you right. make a good point yeah. with honoring... And, and, and just to butt in real quick, just to butt in, it reminds me of um, something that Doug Wilson said. He was speaking at um, Master's Seminary, I think, or Master's Bible College, one of the two. And uh, I think you can look up the video on YouTube. It's called, like, um, How to speak to atheists or something like that and and he gives a story on when you're arguing with someone you're 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 trying to win the person right you're not trying to necessarily win the argument i know both kind of go hand in hand most of the time but he he tells a story which like um there's this church and they're lacking a pastor so they appeal to the presbytery and um they send them an elder and so the first elder goes because the church said we need a you know, someone that, that preaches, you know, uh, damnation and hellfire, right? So they send the first elder, and uh, after three weeks, the, they say that they kick that pastor out. And then they appeal to the presbytery and they say, hey, we need another elder, you know, but remember, someone that preaches, uh, you know, damnation and hellfire. So they send the second pastor, and a few weeks later, they end up kicking that pastor out as well. And then they request the presbytery again. They're like, hey, send us another elder. But remember, damnation and hellfire. And this pastor, you know, Doug Wilson says, ended up staying. And many years passed. And one of the, you know, one of the people from the presbytery was walking one day and he runs into one of the members from the church. And he says, hey, uh, what happened to the first two pastors? Why did you guys end up staying with the third? Was it just because you guys were tired of meeting new elders? Were they not preaching hell and damnation? Uh, what was the reason why you guys stuck with the with the with the third? And he says that the church member responded saying, "Oh no, 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 no! All three of them proclaimed, you know, damnation and hellfire. It's just that the third one sounded like he didn't want us to go there. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like that that intentionality is there. You know, we do it with, with with a heart that really yearns for the person we're we're speaking to. You know, it's a human being. It's a soul, and and we don't want to be rude. We want to be gentle." Um, and really put ourselves in our in their shoes. Uh, for example, a lot of people's uh, main objection is 
the problem of evil. We don't want a response snarky, but, you know, sometimes they want an intellectual answer, but other times it's really just an emotional response. And we kind of need to be there and, you know, give them a shoulder to cry on while we proclaim the truth of Scripture. Yeah, because a lot of people aren't just like intellectual, logical robots. We have more than just our rationality. We have emotions and we have past experiences. And especially if we're talking to someone we don't know, we don't know what they've been through in life, if they were abused by a church or abused by Christians, and they might have bitterness towards Christianity for that reason. And in that case, arguments usually aren't just going to get through to them without addressing the other issues. So we have to be more personable in our approach and care about the person more than just the intellectual argument. Agreed. And I think that's the essence of what Peter is getting at. But there is some nuance according to some interpretations and some apologetic methodologies, which we could talk about later. So in doing apologetics, there are different methods of doing it. And I know in our kind of Christian circle of the Reformed world, it's usually looked at in terms of a dichotomy. You're either an evidentialist or you're a presuppositionalist. But that's not really the case, is it? No, it's not. So we can talk about different methods. And we'll start with the classical method. So would you describe yourself as a classical apologist? Uh, I'll say it right now. I, uh, I don't really subscribe to one, to a methodology just yet. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I don't have much, uh, issues with the classical arguments. I know that's not all the classical, uh, classical methodology is, but, um, that is a big part of it. So as far as the classical arguments, uh, I don't use them in my practice. Uh, I, when I approach apologetic, I usually just try to answer objections and proclaim the gospel. Um, but uh, I have no problem with classical apologetics. Do I consider myself one? Uh, I don't know. But I do study the arguments a lot, and I try to um, think critically about them as well. Cool. So the arguments James is talking about is primarily the classical arguments for God's existence. And these would contain arguments like cosmological arguments, which argue for God's existence based on causation or the existence of the universe. There's ontological arguments which argue for God's existence based on the concept of God being the maximally great being. Then there's teleological arguments which argue for God's existence on the basis of design and complexity in life or the universe. There's moral arguments which argue for God's existence based on the existence of objective morality. And there are a few other ones like the argument for the resurrection or the Lewis trilemma, which is the argument that goes Jesus was either a liar, lunatic, or Lord, but he was neither a liar nor a lunatic, therefore he was Lord. And classical apologists use these arguments to establish the truth of Christianity at least to a degree of high probability, or according to R.C. Sproul, who's a classical apologist, they establish Christianity in such a way that it is compelling. Now, when I hear people talk about classical apologetics or the most notable classical apologist now, William Lane Craig, they often equate it with evidential apologetics. And that's not necessarily a justified 
uh, equation of the two because they can be distinguished for a few reasons. So we can also talk about evidential apologetics. And the main difference between the two, depending on who you're talking to, is either that evidential apologetics doesn't think it's necessary to argue for God's existence prior to arguing for Christianity specifically. So they might go straight to an argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whereas a classical apologist would argue first for God's existence and then argue for the resurrection of Jesus. But another way to distinguish between classical apologetics and evidential apologetics is to say that evidential apologetics only establishes Christianity with a degree of probability, whereas classical apologetics establishes Christianity such that it is compelling. And that's the distinction I've heard R.C. Sproul make in his lectures on apologetics. So some people have criticized classical apologetics for being autonomous or for only establishing Christianity to a high degree of probability. What do you think of those objections? Well, I guess when they say autonomous, I guess they mean that uh, they're not starting from the, they're not arguing from the presupposition that God already exists. Um, it's not a part of their argument or, or right, syllogism. They're making God the end of a syllogism. Right. Um, and so from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, I guess the issue that they have with that and why they say it's autonomous is because um, they would say that they can't even argue or give a reasonable response without already assuming that God exists. And they're taking the approach that they can do so without God or, or something like that. Uh, I, I don't really know what exactly people mean when they make that claim, uh, that it's that it's an autonomous form of apologetic. Uh, I know that Arsus Pro has said something along, along the lines that man can't escape himself, so he kind of has to start with himself. Um, you know, and I, I've seen James White's response to that as well, but I don't really fully understand what they mean by it. Yeah, so I think the basic idea is that when we start with our own reasoning and we don't start with God as the foundation of our epistemology or our theory of knowledge, what we're saying is that we can know things and interpret the universe correctly without ta any reference to God. And they would say that's wrong because the only way to interpret any fact correctly is to realize that it's created by God and it's sustained by God. It's true because God made it true. And unless we understand a fact in that way, we aren't recognizing the fact as it really is. So presuppositionalists usually make this criticism against classical apologists. And their basic idea is that when classical apologists start with premises that are neutral, for example, the universe began to exist and maybe support this by current scientific models like the Big Bang, what they think the classical apologist is doing is saying that the unbeliever can know about the universe or know true facts without any reference to God's existence or how God created and sustains the universe and makes facts true. And they can see this as sinful because you're not recognizing God for who he is and you're letting the unbeliever be the judge of God. And you're putting God in the dock, as they would say. And they don't want to put God on trial. 
it's not necessarily true, but their motives for it is actually good in my mind because they don't want to have an apologetic methodology which is sinful or dishonoring to God. And I don't think any apologist really does. Right. The difference is classical apologists think that when we think about the world, we can't start from anything but ourselves because we only know ourselves and our own reasoning. So we have to start from our own experience and then from their reason to the conclusion that God exists. So there's kind of a disagreement there between classical apologists and presuppositionalists. So we really haven't talked about what presuppositional apologetics is, yet we've mentioned it. So you used to be a presuppositionalist. Right. And you gave that up recently. Indeed. Yes, I did. So we should should probably say that this 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 podcast isn't just an avenue for James to continue his <laughs> arguments against presuppositionalism. We're going to talk about a lot more than just that. Yeah, yeah, and, so and actually, I actually hope we could get a presupper on the podcast to you know ex, you know not to debate. I don't want that at all. But to you know just to explain what they believe. I don't want this to be a podcast that's in that has a secret agenda to bash presup and expose it or whatnot. You know, I, I really want this yeah. to be a place yeah. where we can have dialogue with with people. Definitely not. Like I would love to have Saiten Bruggen Kate or Jeff Durbin come on and talk about presuppositionalism because I think those two are definitely the most popular popular level presuppositionalists around and right. a lot of people who are introduced to presuppositional apologetics are introduced through those two guys and yep. I was one of them Same. so yeah this definitely isn't a podcast to bash presuppositionalism so in terms of presuppositionalism a presuppositionalist says that we should start with God and his revelation as the foundation for all our reasoning and our entire worldview. So we shouldn't start with neutrality or maybe God exists, maybe he doesn't exist. But we should always have a firm foundation and confidence in God's existence and his revelation in scripture. And they would appeal to First Peter 3.15 honoring Christ the Lord is holy to support that opinion. And from there, they would say that if you deny God's revelation, then you will not be able to account for the preconditions of intelligibility. You won't even be able to make sense of experience unless you borrow from the Christian worldview and the presuppositions that we have. And any other worldview will be internally inconsistent. So, the basic methodology will be we'll start with God's existence and then we'll do an internal critique of the unbeliever's worldview to show an incoherence. And then we can ask the unbeliever to consider our worldview and see how it's internally consistent and can account for the preconditions of intelligibility. And in that way, we defend our faith without dishonoring God or putting God in the dock or making the unbeliever, the judge of God. Right. Do you think I... Which, mm -hmm. Do you think that's a good description? Yeah, I think I, th I think that's fair. Um, and, uh, you know, not to add to the description, I think that was actually very well said and articulated. But um, just, you know, I kind of want to say this, just to the comment that 
the classical methodology, which I don't subscribe to, so I'm not really saying this from a biased point of view, and I'm trying to be as objective as possible, but the claim that they put God in the dark, I, I've never really thought that was fair, even when I was into presuppositional apologetic. Because it seems to me that what they're doing is putting the argument, right, the, the syllogism or whatever argument they're using on the dock and letting the, the, the non-believer kind of judge that or, or, or you know, dispute it. But um, I, I wouldn't say they're necessarily putting God on the dock, but but really trying to see if this is, you know, a valid argument. You know, is it sound? Do the premises uh, lead to the conclusion? You know, um, so I think I've never thought that was necessarily a fair way to put it. Yeah, I, I think from their perspective, they would see it as when we say maybe God exists, maybe he doesn't. Let's look at the arguments you're putting your reasoning above God and his revelation. So you are, it's kind of an act of arrogance from their perspective and you're rebelling against God's authority. And and I want to respect them as much as possible because I know that most of them really do feel like taking a different methodology is sinful. And I I don't think that, you know, that most preceptors are trying to be, um, you know, bigots uh, or arrogant at all. So I do want to, you know, say that I do respect them a lot and I do admire the fact that they try to make the proclamation of the gospel the end go apologetic, which I guess a lot of people sometimes do forget to do. Yeah, one thing I like about presuppositionalism is that it has a strong emphasis on having a scriptural apologetic. They want to find their method of doing apologetics straight from scripture. And that's a great idea if it's possible. So if Mm -hmm. scripture does give us a discrete method of apologetics, then we should do that. The question is, does it give us a method? And if so, is that method presuppositionalism? But I think the motives behind presuppositionalism are good, and I think they're motivations that all Christian apologists should have. I agree. So when we talk about presuppositionalism and evidential and classical apologetics, These are all types of apologetics that, in a sense, argue for God's existence. I know some presuppositionalists don't want to say they have a proof for God's existence, but Van Til, who is one of the founding fathers of presuppositionalism, would say that he has a proof for God's existence, and not only that, absolutely certain proof. And that proof is the transcendental argument. So. The transcendental argument is the argument from the impossibility of the contrary, meaning that contrary worldviews are impossible or incoherent, as I said before. And the best example of this being presented is, I'd say, Bonson's debate with Gordon Stein. And the second best would be Doug Wilson's argument with Dan Barker. Oh, that's a great one. So, now, you're not a presuppositionalist, but do you think there is value or things to be learned from how presuppositionalists engage with unbelievers? I personally really enjoy Doug Wilson's debates. Um, uh, I think there's a lot of meat in his debates, uh, especially, you know, the ones with... uh, 
I, I like the damn Barker one, but my favorite ones are actually the ones, his dialogues with Christopher Hitchens. Because, uh, you know, especially with internet atheists, uh, they t- t- tend to have a Christopher Hitchens sort of rhetoric. And I think Doug Wilson actually does give um, people of the classical persuasion or the presuppositional, you know, a lot of am- um, ammo to respond. Uh, for example, uh, I know that Christopher Hitchens had like a general consensus theory of morality, how it's uh, defined by society and whatnot. So, you know, I've always liked his uh, Doug Wilson's, you know, counter arguments. And I think those are really good. And another thing I do appreciate from Presuppers is um, Jeff Durbin's um, interactions with when he's street preaching. I think he has one of the best um, attitudes to model. He's very loving. You could really feel his love for the souls, uh, his desire for the people to be saved, his desire and love for the proclamation of the gospel. So um, as far as as far as far approach and intentionality goes, I really enjoy Jeff Durbin's. And as far as uh, wittiness and rhetoric goes from the presuppositional side, I enjoy Doug Wilson a lot. And I think James White did a very good job and um, some of his his responses with um, against David Silverman in his debate. Um, I remember David Silverman asked him a lot of questions, and James White actually gave answers for them, though he's a presuppositionalist, uh, which a lot of them don't. Like, I know Saiton Bergenkate, and I don't mean this to bash him. I love Saiton Bergenkate. But I know that a lot of times when they have, like, a biblical question, they'll say, I don't do Bible studies with unbelievers. But um, James White actually answered a lot of biblical objections that David Silverman had. So I liked his approach as a presupper. Um and of course, Bonson. I mean, you know, I mean, it's Bonson. <laughs> he's he's uh, after Van Til. He's kind of the main guy. So I do appreciate a lot of his writings. I've only seen one debate from him, so um, I can't really say too much. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Yeah, Greg Bonson is basically the go-to guy to understand presuppositional apologetics, whether it's his book Always Ready or Presuppositional Apologetics Stated and Defended or his long book Van Til's Apologetics, which is a massive book. It's like almost 800 pages. Which I have right in front of me. (laughs) Yeah, so Van Til is one of the founders of presuppositionalism and there's one side of presuppositionalism that's not talked about as much, which is Clarkian presuppositionalism and I don't know too much about Clarkian presuppositionalism but I think it's important to mention it because online I've seen more Clarkians showing up and using their methodology so presuppositionalism isn't just Vantillianism but there's also a different side to it which is Clarkian apologetics and one type of apologetic method we didn't talk about in terms of methods that establish God's existence or prove God's existence is a cumulative apologetics. And the idea behind this is it's much like classical or evidential apologetics, but it doesn't seek to prove Christianity by one argument. Rather, it says if you have an accumulation of arguments, hence why it's called accumulative, then you're going to establish Christianity's truth to a higher degree because you have several arguments. Is this William Lane Craig's type of approach? William Lane Craig could be considered accumulative because he usually argues a few different arguments, Kalam cosmological, Leibniz's cosmological, moral, and teleological. And then he'll argue for the argument for the resurrection. 
And he does say that when you have a group of arguments together that you're providing more warrant for the truth of Christianity. But he would still identify with classical apologetics. He actually contributed to a book, I think it's called Five Views of Apologetics, and he argued for the classical side, whereas someone else argued for the cumulative side. But they are all very close together. A notable accumulative apologist would be Richard Swinburne. And he doesn't do too many debates, but there are some there on YouTube to watch. So he would use a accumulation of arguments to argue for Christianity. Now, there are some methods of apologetics which don't clearly argue for the truth of Christianity. And these ones have been criticized for that reason, because as we've mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, that apologetics is a rational defense of the truth of Christianity. So for these apologetic methodologies, they would have to deny the fact that you have to defend the truth of Christianity to actually be doing apologetics. And that's a contentious claim, but some make it, and I think they can make a case for it. So the first of these would be Reformed epistemology. Now, I think you would closely agree with this much more than any other method. Is that right? That's correct. So who is the main guy, the main philosopher behind Reformed epistemology? Uh, that would be Alvin Plantinga, and it originally started with a, uh, he called it the Calvin model, uh, based on the census divinitatis, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on in a different episode, probably devote an entire episode to it. And I think one of his Thomanistic friends mentioned that uh, Thomas Aquinas had that specific model as well, so now he calls it the uh, uh, Aquinas-Calvin model or something like that, but he's the main yeah, the philosopher. A- the AC model. Yeah, that's correct, and uh he has a a, a a a trilogy of books. I think the first one's called Warrant, the Current Debate. The other one, Warrant Improper Function. And the third one is Warranted Christian Belief, where in that one he kind of argues for, um, or he kind of presents a reform epistemolo- epistemology, uh, that type of view, um, which is based on on properly basic beliefs. That, that, that would be the epistemology that I um, subscribe to. Um, I think I think it's the closest one to scripture um, from the models that's from what scripture does tell us about our knowledge of God. If we had to put it in a philosophical model, which I'm not trying to read the philosophy into scripture, we're trying to see which model fits what scripture already proclaims. I'd say that reform epistemology probably gets the closest. Uh, so yeah, that is the one that I affirm. Though I don't really consider it a apologetic methodology, but more so just in epistemology. Right, so you would still think that it has relevance to defending the Christian faith or at least engaging in evangelism when people have objections like if you don't have arguments for God's existence, you have no right to believe in God. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, 100% true. Yeah, that's right. So the basic idea behind Reformed epistemology is not to argue for the truth of Christianity but to argue that Christian belief, even if you don't have a good argument for the truth of Christian belief, you are still rational and justified in believing it. And Alvin Plantinga would go as far to say that your belief is warranted if Christianity is true, such that you have knowledge that it is true. 
So the way he starts this is he talks about epistemology in terms of foundationalism. And foundationalism is the view that for a belief to be justified, which means for one to be within their epistemic rights to hold the belief, roughly, they have to either have good reason for that belief or it has to be self-evident or undoubtable. And that's oversimplifying. Various philosophers have had different definitions of what constitutes a basic belief, where a basic belief is a belief that doesn't need inferential proof for its justification. And this goes back to Descartes, John Locke, and this would be called classical foundationalism. And what Plantinga wants to say is that classical foundationalism isn't justified itself because it's not a basic belief. You, it's not self-evident. It's not immediately obvious. And it's hard to see how you would justify it by rational inference. So he wants to reject this as a incoherent, self-referentially incoherent epistemology. But he doesn't want to give up foundationalism altogether. So rather he says... Any belief that doesn't have a sufficient defeater is justified as a properly basic belief. So this means you could believe in God's existence without having arguments for it, but be justified in it. And this is kind of the idea, and he would call this weak foundationalism, and he describes this in a paper he wrote called The Reformed Objection to Natural Theology. And he outlines some of the reformers, specifically Calvin and Bovink, and says they roughly took this view, although in an undeveloped form. In his, in his later career, he went on to talk about warrant. And warrant is much more complex. He would say warrant is the property which distinguishes mere true belief from knowledge. So... This is kind of getting into ideas of the Gettier problem and concepts of what it means to have knowledge. And I think we'll talk about this in a later episode. But what Plantinga basically says is that a warranted belief is one in which it was, your belief was formed by properly functioning cognitive faculties in an appropriate environment according to a design plan successfully aimed at truth. And that's kind of a complex definition. But the basic idea is that you need to be in an environment that's not deceptive. You need to be in an environment that was designed according to a design plan that would aim you towards producing true beliefs, as well as having your cognitive faculties functioning for that purpose. And when that happens, God could create a world in which people form their beliefs naturally about him, which... Plantinga appeals to the sensus divinitatis of Calvin to explain that. And through that, you would gain knowledge of God's existence. So even though this is more of a complex apologetic, if you can call it apologetic, and isn't necessarily something you'd use on street level, it is a good apologetic in the rigorous academic world of philosophy. And it can be helpful and useful to Christians who wonder how their belief can be justified even though they can't understand or can't grasp or can't be confident in 
the classical arguments or the transcendental arguments or things like that. So what do you think about Plantinga's perspective in terms of applying it to the everyday Christian who doesn't have time to study apologetics but wants to know how their belief can be rational? Because if you think about it, most people don't believe in God's existence because they studied philosophy and came to that conclusion. So what are your thoughts on using that as an apologetic? Yeah, well, first of all, I'd say that we kind of, we'd kind of warn against coming to the belief of God based on arguments, or or, not necessarily, that's a poor way of putting it, but basically we want to make sure that our faith isn't grounded in arguments, right? Uh, And I think uh, Reformed epistemology kind of has formulated a model that is uh, faithful to Scripture. For example, I I think of passages, um, uh, you know, for example, and I I think it's 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, where it says, no one can say, Lord, if not by the Holy Spirit. Um, Or or in 1 John, where it says, uh, that that you we have the testimony of men and we can believe it, but how much greater is the testimony of God? Uh, Romans eight says that the Spirit bears witness that we are indeed children of God, and uh, the Bible kind of gives us a a model that says that the Spirit bears witness in us, and the reason why I kind of am talking about this is because specifically uh, what Planiga kind of points to when saying that Christian belief is warranted and um you know uh, warranted kind of how you said is it it kind of gets into the getter problem and I, I guess what we could say is um and this is just me trying to put in my own words it it, it tries to it's a way to avoid coming to a, an epistemic luck where you um believe something that is true but it's doesn't constitute as knowledge because you are believing it because of it. You got lucky in in justifying it. Uh, would you agree with that? A simple. Yeah, philosophers would. Yeah, philosophers would call it an accidentally true belief, and that's kind of the idea behind the Gettier problem, where you have a true belief and it, you have a justification for it, but it's only a true belief by accident. And you kind of got lucky, as you say. Right. So um, one way that Alvin argues that Christians can have warranted belief is on the base of our experience um, with the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit of God bears witness in us. And um, so the, the argument basically is that we can have knowledge of God and have belief in God as a properly basic belief, as something that isn't, and for, and, you know, it's not inferential it's not something we argue to which is kind of gets into his soft foundationalism and um one way that he kind of argues that this is possible is by um saying that we do hold to a lot of property basic beliefs in this fashion for example the fact that other minds exist or that our memory is valid we can't necessarily prove that our memory is valid without appealing to our memory or the fact that uh we can't prove that our senses are, are, are valid or um, th- that they're working. So he kind of says that belief in God can work the same way, uh, that we can believe in it on the basis of experience. Um, and this is where it gets into warrant um, rather than justification. Um, the same way that we believe in other minds and we believe that our memory is valid is on the basis of our experience, but we don't 
argue for it because arguing for it would be circular. Um, so he says that the same thing would apply with belief in God if it's true that God um, bears witness to his children. And we, and, you know, I'd say that this is rational to believe on the Christian. And when it comes to Christian theism, you know, God wants his children to be saved. So he'd give them knowledge of himself if they were, you know, not in a specific place where they could receive arguments, right? Uh, for example, people in, in China or people in other places that are ruled by a communistic form of government, which has certain laws against Christianity, you know, they don't have the resources that we have in, in the United States. And there are believers there, right? They're not believing through arguments necessarily, or they're not listening to William Lane Craig or to uh, Cy and Kate, right? Uh, you know, and it's reasonable to assume that God would reveal himself to his children because he wants them to be saved. So uh, based on that premise, we can assume that if this is true, that God does want his children to be saved and that it's reasonable that he would reveal himself to his children, then he would do so in such a way that our cognitive faculties would be trustworthy, right? He would do it in a way that he could reveal to us and that we could trust it. So it's kind of a a linear form of thinking about it that therefore, when we think about God as a pro- belief in God as a properly basic belief, we can trust as a Christian that based on our experience, the witness wears, bears witness in our life. Um, and what what does that look like? I don't really think it looks the same for everyone. Um, it's kind of an um, intuitive kind of deep conviction that God exists. Um, I know that William Lane Craig kind of goes a little bit deeper into it. Um, and he kind of appeals more to like experiences of the deep presence of God in his life. So, you know, that'd be his way of saying it. I'd just kind of say how Alvin Plantica does. It's like a deep conviction of the truth of God and of the truth of the gospel. Um, so we can trust that. And on the basis of that experience, similarly to how we tr- believe that our memory is valid and that other minds exist, we can believe that God exists and have that belief as a, as properly basic, as in not needing arguments. And it's not a conclusion to a syllogism. It's not inferential, but it's um, foundational, kind of like a, a weak foundation. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think there's three points that you touched on that are really important. And the first is that not everyone has access to academic arguments for God's existence or the truth of Christianity. And even if you do have access to it, there's no necessary connection that you're also going to be smart enough or have the time to study them enough. And I've heard it said a few times that if the only way to get to heaven was through academic arguments to believe in God, then it would also be true that the only way to get to heaven would also be to get through Harvard because you would need to be so right. intellectually rigorous to be able to get a degree or master's degree from Harvard. And the second point would be that Plantinga notes that if Christianity is true, then his model or something like his model is probably true. So he's not making the strong claim that his model is necessarily the Christian model, but just something like it. And it has apologetic value for that reason, because if some atheist makes the objection, well, your belief in God is unjustified if you can't provide evidence for God's existence, then you could say, well, if Christianity is true, then a model like this could be true. So it's not necessarily 
the case that my belief in God is unjustified apart from arguments and evidence unless you have good reason to think Christianity is false. And the third point I'd say is regarding the experience of the Holy Spirit or intuition. And for me, I would say it's both. It's intuitively true to me. And what I mean by that is I can't see it any other way. Like if I try to think like maybe God doesn't exist or maybe Jesus didn't die for my sins. I see it as, no, that's true. God exists and Christ died for my sins. Now I can think hypothetically, well, if Jesus didn't exist, then there would be these conclusions. Or if God doesn't exist and naturalism is true, then this might obtain. And I can think hypothetically, but in terms of my belief, it seems intuitively true that God exists and intuitively true that Christ died for my sins. Uh, Plantinga refers to Jonathan Edwards's phrase, the great truths of the gospel. And he also brought up how William Lane Craig talks about experience. And I've experienced that too. There's certain moments in my life where I have more of an experience of the presence of God than at other times. And right. those are great boosts in my faith and encouragements in my faith. But there's always an intuitive sense Amen. that this is in fact true. And Plantinga sometimes just says it simply like he, he basically says like it just seems to him to be true and that's it. So Plantinga basically says it just seems to him to be true and that's it. Like he doesn't need anything more. It just seems right to him. Yeah, and, and we're not, when we refer to reform epistemology and how we can consider it in apologetic, we're not saying that, we're, that we would argue with an unbeliever and say it's intuitive, intuit, it's, it's intuitive to me, therefore believe in it. That's, that wouldn't be the argument. We're not saying that we want other people to base their belief in God because it's intuitive to us. But that's, but it, it kind of does get to a personal level. Uh, you know, God can be personally experienced, but that's not the ba- that's not an argument in and of itself. And uh, I think it, it um, I just, I just kind of want to clear that up in case an unbeliever is listening to this. We don't want them to think that we, we are arguing for this, but you know, we're just kind of talking from our personal experience um, and, and, and we believe it to be true. Uh, and it's intuitive to us. And, uh, you know, God does says, seek him and he shall be found. So we do encourage anyone believers out there to, you know, to seek the Lord, right. Uh, you know, study, study the word, uh, you know, try to pray and see if you have this experience as well. And it's, we're not just saying just experience. There's, you know, we, we do want to encourage intellectualism, but at the same time, we don't want to discourage a personal relationship with, uh, God. Right. I really like how William Lane Craig ends his opening statements of debates or his closing statement. After summarizing the arguments he gives for God's existence, he also says that God and Christ can be personally known and experienced. And God promises that if you seek him in faith, then he will reveal himself to you. And that's of most importance than any of the arguments, I think. Because if there is the Christian God who does want people to be saved and he's all-powerful, he can cause people to experience his presence and know him, not just on an intellectual level, but on a personal level, apart from any arguments for his existence. And I really like Reformed epistemology for that reason, because it emphasizes something more 
foundational to Christian faith. The other argument, you can kind of get caught up in the intellectualism of it, but you're not really addressing the issues of the heart or your personal experience and the redemption that is felt from the forgiveness of sins that Christ, Christ provides. Amen. So it can actually lead to a lot of good gospel conversations rather than just intellectual philosophical conversations, which are fun too, but they're not the end of our goal as apologists or Christians. Yep. And we've kind of been focusing on reform epistemology and precept quite a bit. You want to kind of get to the, um, or is there something else you want to add? Yeah, we definitely have. Well, I think it, it reformed epistemology can tie into pragmatic apologetics or existential apologetics more specifically. Because in existential apologetics, you kind of appeal to people's existential desires to be loved, accepted, be part of a community or the sense that justice should be provided for wrongdoings. And existential apologetics appeals to these things. And a reformed epistemologist can do the same too. Once they show that belief in God can be rational apart from arguments and evidence, they can kind of appeal to the unbeliever's conscience and show them that they have these desires that Christianity can fulfill. So one person that would be an existential apologist would be N.T. Wright. And he would argue for this in his book, Simply Christian. And pragmatic apologetics, it can tie into reformed epistemology because a pragmatic apologetics argues that whether or not Christian belief is true, it's a good idea to be a Christian. And the main pragmatic argument would be Pascal's wager. So this Which is excellent rhetoric. It, it's excellent rhetoric, but it kind of gets a lot of heat sometimes because it's suggesting to the unbeliever to choose to be a Christian not because they recognize their sin or uh, believe in God's existence for a good reason or something like that, but just to save themselves from hellfire. And I don't think it always has to be phrased this way. What it can do is it can cause somebody to think that Christianity is a good religion to explore and maybe start praying or reading scripture or attending church and seeing if they sense the presence of God through that. So I don't think necessarily that it has right. to... And in that sense is what I kind of wanted to say. Yeah. So can you just give a brief explanation of what Pascal's Wager is? So Pascal's Wager basically says something along the lines of um, evidence for the non-existence of God and for the existence of God is um, at an equal level. Uh, if you were to put on a scale, it's 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 equal. So because that is the case, then therefore you should go with the one that kind of benefits you the best, so to say. That's not the best way to to put it, but um, and he argues that if you believe in God and He does exist, then you will go to heaven and not really miss out. On life, but if you choose not to believe in God and you don't serve Him, and He does end up existing, you just had, you know, a moment of life. Maybe you had some fun, but you will have an eternity of suffering. Now, I do know that some of the objections are well. This assumes that that there is a hell, or that God sends people to hell, or that there's punishment, or that it's assuming the the Christian God, or you know, all this type of stuff. But since the Christian God is a viable you know, option for theism, 
that it should be considered. And in the sense that I meant that it's excellent rhetoric, um, not necessarily to make someone believe in God, but to kind of motivate them, kind of like how you said, to kind of look into the faith, to seek God, to pray in Him. Because if Christianity is true, specifically Orthodox Christianity, right, what evangelicals would agree with, what Eastern Orthodox, what Catholics would agree with about, uh, you know, about God, uh, you know, the, the, the early creeds and about how, then it is the case that there is punishment. And if you do die without, uh, you know, saving faith in Christ, then you will um, suffer damnation. So I think it's excellent rhetoric in the sense that it can motivate someone to want to look into this um, and seek God and experience him. Yeah, definitely. So as I've often heard Pascal's wager, it emphasizes the infinite gain if you're a Christian and Christianity ends up being true and the finite loss if you're a Christian and Christianity isn't true and God doesn't exist. You might have had to live as a Christian, live kind of a lie, but it ultimately doesn't matter too much. And if you don't live as a Christian and Christianity is not true and God doesn't exist, you have a finite gain. You might have lived a good life, you might have lived a life believing that which is true, but there's not an infinite gain. But if you don't believe in God, don't believe in Christianity, and Christianity is true, then there's an infinite loss, given that you'll go to hell for eternity. And you bring up a good point where people talk about, well, it's not taking into account Islam or Greek religion or Chinese religions or anything like that. So it's hard to even decide which religion to choose because you could lose out on all of them. And that's one objection. Uh, Some have responded to it by saying, well, you can look at all the known religions and see which one is more plausible. And if you have reasons to doubt Nordic beliefs and reasons to doubt Islam and that Christianity seems the most plausible to you, so it's either Christianity or non-belief, then you can run Pascal's wager on that and through that you would come to the conclusion allegedly that Christianity is the more useful choice and the better choice and that can cause someone to look into Christianity so I think that's a good rundown of the basic methodologies of apologetics we spent a lot of time on presuppositionalism and reformed epistemology and covered the other ones briefly and I think we'll do a poly- we'll do podcasts on each of them at later times, and we can go in more in depth at that point. So, is there anything you want to add? No, I think that was uh, I think that was pretty good. Um, I think we kind of could have focused a bit more on uh, you know when people use, um, but I think you kind of covered it with evidentialism. Um, you know, when people use like archaeology, uh, you know, his, uh, historical evidence, uh, you know, to prove the existence of God as well. And also um, don't, you know, just to the people listening, um, these were specifically apologetics that are um, that tend to receive notice for the existence of God. But they do have their um, their way of being used against anti-Trinitarians, against Islam and, and other streams uh, other ways of, of using apologetic as well so though we focus more on on how these kind of approach the existence of god um these do have specific you know for example classical evidential and presub they do have a way of 
arguing against Coates as well. So uh, though we didn't talk about it too much, um, they are forms of apologetic that people use to engage other subjects as well, other than the existence of God. Yeah, I think we had a main focus on talking about how these relate to discussing with atheists and agnostics, but they definitely have application to cults and other faiths. So I think with that, we'll close off the first episode of Arguments from Reason. Yeah, so thank you everyone for tuning in. Make sure you like, uh, share, uh, subscribe. If we put this on YouTube, uh, like the uh, Facebook like page that we will put up uh, and just share this. Um, you know, share the future episodes as well with uh, unbelieving uh, friends you may have or anything. Uh, you know, share with uh, zealous pre-suppers and share with zealous classicals. You know, we want to create a platform where we can have dialogues, a respectful dialogue with... Uh, with and, and zealous reformed epistemologists. And, and zealous what? And zealous reformed epistemologists. Well, I'm right here, so I think we got that one covered. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so just make sure that you like and share, everyone. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so just like and share. We look forward <laughs> to doing this. This is something we love. Uh, so, yeah, uh, with that being said, I'm James, and that was Dylan, and we do this all to the glory of God, Soli Deo Gloria. Well, that's all, folks. Thank you. Goodbye. God bless.